a, in a series called The Kingdom is Like, looking at the parables of Jesus. And uh, we'll probably will come back to this because there's so many parables. There's so many things that we just didn't hit on. You know, we've done four of these and, and, and there's just a third of all of Jesus' teachings were done with parables. So probably in the history of our church, we'll kind of, you know, as available as, we, as the Lord so prompts, we'll jump back in and sort of do this series in one-offs. But this will kind of be the last one for this, for this group. We're in Luke chapter 15. I've got to stop talking long enough to find it. I can't do two things at once. All right, you guys there? And we got Bibles up here too. Anybody need one? The real thing? All right, they're right up here. Don't be shy. Meg's going to make us hold it up if you got one. Uh-huh. All right, all right, all right. Don't say we didn't ask. I'm drinking my coffee because I didn't get it this morning. We were trying to fix our internet issues, and so a little bit behind. So in, in my family, we've got four children. Most of our movie watching involves kid-friendly movies the, of, of the G variety, um, and especially the Pixar movies. We love those. We've loved them from the very beginning because they're so well done, you know, and they're story-driven and character-driven. And I remember one of the first times that we took, it probably was, I don't know, Emma or Josie, to find or to see Finding Nemo. Remember the story of that? And of course, there's been a sequel out recently, but at the time, Finding Nemo was sort of the, the standalone story, and it really isn't an original storyline. You know, um, it's, it's all about this idea of lostness. And if, if anybody not know the story of that, come on, somebody please raise your hand so I can tell it. <laughs> Chuck, you never heard? Okay, great, Chuck. This is the best story. It's about a clownfish, right? A family of clownfish, and Nemo is his name, and something terrible happens to, to Nemo's mom and all of Nemo's little brothers, and all of a sudden, it's just Dad and Nemo alone in the, in the reef off of the coast of Africa, right? And, it's, and something happens along the way, and uh, you know, Nemo kind of you know, disregards what Dad has said is the safe thing to do, and he gets caught by a net and taken, and he's now living in an aquarium in a dentist office in Sydney, Australia. What's the address? Something, something, Wallaby Way, is that it? <laughs> P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. It's awesome. You can tell parents here. We've got it memorized. And the whole story is about Dad trying to find Nemo. It's about Marlon in a desperate search to go and find his son and bring him home. And he runs into Dory, the, you know, fish who doesn't have a long-term memory or whatever, and he's just trying to make his way back. And it was, it was such a popular movie, and it was really resonant with so many people, and maybe many of us didn't realize why, you know, but it's, it's such a human condition, this idea of being found, of being hunted down, of, of being sought after. Um, and I just, I love to kind of revisit this. It's about someone coming, this idea that someone is coming to find me. And I, I just, you know, in my 42 years of life and all the times that I've been ministering to people, that's, that's sort of this recurring inner um, need that we have is the need to be sought after, the, to know that someone desires me, that someone is coming after me, that someone wants relationship with me. So maybe it's a father, maybe it's a, a spouse or whatever else. Um, so, but Jesus has some parables though, oddly enough. Jesus was the original, you know, storyteller of this kind. He talks about this, um, talk about this very thing. So in, in Luke 15, he gives three of these lost stories back to back, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And we're going to look at these real quickly. And they're all meant to be read together. And it really is all the same theme. 
Um, let me give you the, and by the way, um, the lost son, so lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, the lost son, or you can think of, maybe you've heard it called the prodigal son. This is the longest of Jesus' parables. And there's a law in inductive Bible study called the law of priority or the law of proportion, which means that the longer something is, is given, the, 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 the more space on the parchment, so to speak, that something is given, the more important it is. Because the original writers, they didn't have word processors and computers. They had a, a set amount of parchment and a set amount of space and a set amount of time. So they weren't going to waste sort of waste space with superfluous details, it really didn't matter. So if something is pretty lengthy in the Gospels, we're meant to say, hey, pay attention to this. It's long, but it's very, very important. And the, and the, the parable of the lost son is one of those. Um, let's kind of read a little bit in beginning of this to, to set the context. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners... Does your Bible have... The sinners in quotes, or is that just my Bible? It's just, it's the NIV. It's interesting. The tax collectors and sinners is in quotes. You know, so it's implying that tax collectors are sinners and all these other people are sinners. We're all gathering around to hear him. Talking about Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. I love that word, muttered. Sometimes my kids mutter. You know what that means? It means like, I want to express myself, but I'm not brave enough to say it to your face. Right? <laughs> Sometimes I mutter, right, Megan? I grouse and I kind of, whatever, mumble under my breath. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Very offended by this. Clearly they have this understanding that, that people of, of, of high standing, you know, religious standing should not associate with these other kind of people. Should not eat with them, should not be at a table with them. It's, it's sort of guilty by association. So the Pharisees are judging him on this. And it goes in, it says, Jesus told them this parable. And he says this, he says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? You guys remember my story last fall about the goat that was missing? Didn't I like tell that story on Facebook or something? I don't know, it's... Reminds me of this. We've got goats, and one time one of them went missing, and I couldn't find it. So now I'm like, I get what he's talking about. You got to leave these, and you got to go because the sun is coming down, and this, <clears throat> this sheep or this goat or whatever is out here all alone in the elements. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. I didn't do that, and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I did that. Almost took a picture and put it on Instagram. I was so excited about this. Look, I found it. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents <clears throat> than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, hold on. Before we get excited about this, y'all, we're the 99 right here. Is God glad that you're here? Somebody say yes. Is God, does God love you being in the kingdom? Yes, he does. But you know what God's more excited about? The person that's on the edge that's about to come in. He's more excited about them than he is about you being here. He loves us, don't get us wrong, but that's what really gets him excited. The idea of somebody who is outside now becoming on the inside. And he goes on and says this, the parable, so that was the parable of the lost sheep. <clears throat> they understand what that means. The parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. 
Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So do you see the theme then so far? Two lost things, a lost sheep and a lost coin, and then the one who goes after and finds and how excited and how he is celebrating. So here's the third one. It begins this way, verse 11. Jesus continued, getting into the longest parable now. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So we divided his property between them. There's a writer and a scholar, his name is Ken Bailey. He studied, you know, a lot of cult, like sort of anthrop- anthropology and uh, he studied different cultures in the Middle East. And he says this in reference to, to this story that we're about to read. He says, I've li- he says, I've lived in the Middle East for 40 years. So I've lived there for four decades. I've, you know, studied all kinds of indigenous cultures in the ancient Near East and the Far East. He says, not one time says, Ken Bailey, have I ever heard of this happening? What he means is, is that this would be such an offensive thing to say and to do, that this is unfathomable for anybody in this culture. So we got two sons here, older son and a younger son, and the, young, and, the, and the younger son comes and says, Dad, I want my share of this, the estate. Now, there's three in my family. My, I have an older brother, myself, and my little sister, Carrie. So when my parents, far in the future, ever are, are go on to glory, and their estate is to be probated and divided up, the general consensus among probably most functional, healthy families is that the children would sort of equally divide that right? So I would get a third of all my dad's riches. (laughs) Meg's laughing. (laughs) My sister would get a third, and my brother would get a third, and we would equally divide those. Not so in the ancient world. The the, the firstborn son had a double portion. He was entitled to more. The, 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 The responsibility, the name of the family, the estate of the family would largely go to him. He would get a double portion. So in this case, um, instead of being divided into two ways, it would be divided into three ways, and the first son would get two, uh, two-thirds, and this other son would get one-third. It doesn't really make a difference. What matters is that he comes and he says, Dad, I want my share of the estate. So the Bible says, so he divided his property between them. Now, this is a parable, obviously. It means it didn't, there's no evidence that this is a factual story, but we can sort of hypothesize as to what this really means. If you have a lot of land and your son comes to you and says, dad, give me my share of the estate, you're going to have to liquidate some of that. It's not going to be, you're not going to go to the bank and say, okay, I want to pull out $100,000 and give it to your son. It says he divided the property. In other words, there's a whole lot of stuff that he had to do to make this happen. And maybe he had 100 acres and he had to go and say, okay, well, I've got to get 33 acres now to give to my son. You can't just give him the physical land. He sells some of that and gives it to his son. And the request is so offensive and so highly unusual because in essence, what the, what, what the younger son is saying is that, Dad, I'm ready for you to be dead. I can't wait for you to live out your remaining years. 
I'm so greedy and so desperate for all of that that I wish you were dead. I want to live my life as if you are in the grave and buried and that stuff out there is really mine. And it's profoundly offensive. Profoundly offensive in that culture. And it would be in this culture too in the Middle East. And so, but it says he divides his property between them. He does that. He goes and he sells 33 of the acres. And he takes the money and he gives it to his son. And the son, it says this in verse 14. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, the far country. So he doesn't just go to another town. The, the implication is, is that he leaves Israel. He leaves the land of his people. He goes to a land of foreigners and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Money runs out, you know, and I always imagine, you know, the movies, uh, in the movies where, you know, to, to move the plot along, the movie will kind of have this like quick montage usually set to a song, you know what I'm talking about? And like the seasons change and the baby grows up or you know what I'm talking about? Those kind of montages. This is like a montage in my mind. So maybe there's like some kind of great song along with it. But you see the son who's got all, you know, all the stuff on, got all the great clothes, got a woman on each side and he's just doing whatever. He's at the casino having a party. And eventually by the end of the song, his like pockets are empty. The women have abandoned him. He's all alone. He's hungry. The sun is going down. He's saying, great, what do I do? It says that he goes and he hires himself out to somebody else. And this individual says, look, I I don't know you. You're not from our culture. You're not from our town. You're not from our, our country. All I really have for you to do is to go out and feed my pigs. And the son does that. Sent him into his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Wow, that's, that's desperation. I've never been tempted to eat the stuff that I feed our animals. But no one gave him anything. That's harsh. Even in the, even in the Jewish culture, the, the Bible makes it clear, God makes it clear in the, in the Old Testament that, look, if there are strangers and foreigners in your land, you are to treat them with hospitality and kindness. He's not receiving the same thing when he's out there. They're not giving him anything. They're not even letting him lick the bowls of the pig slop and everything that's in there. No one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my, well, let me pause there and stop for a minute. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. So at this point, Jesus' audience has an understanding. They're tracking with him. It's possible they've heard a variation of the story before, but they're tracking with him. The ones who are sort of from the, the low end of the, the socioeconomic spectrum, they're sympathizing with this kid, right? They're like, I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be like serving and slopping pigs and not have enough to eat. I get all this. But the majority of his listeners are not these. The majority of his listeners are Pharisees. They're the ones who, who have position. They have power. They have influence. They have money. At this point, they're thinking one thing only. Serves him right. 
the little wretch. That's what they're thinking. You get what's coming to you, you little punk. What do you think is going to happen? When you flaunt your father's goodwill, when you offend him, when you wish him dead, when you take from him what isn't even yours, and you go out and you live the way you've been living in a foreign country, of course you're going to end up with the pigs. Serves you right, you little wretch. And it's possible, as I said, it's possible that, that a story similar to this would have already been making its rounds around before. And it's possible that they think they know how this ends, the Pharisees. There's a good chance, let me tell you this, there's a, there's a, a book by Curtis Leans called The Man with the Dirty Hands, and he says that there was a sort of an ancient legend circulating around in history uh, from Asia that went something like this, and it's the story that I'm about to tell you has kind of been repeated in other cultures. So it's possible that Jesus' listeners were expecting this particular story. You ready? I'll take my glasses off. I want to read it to you. I need bifocals, by the way. This is kind of on and off, on and off. All right. So here's a story of a man who had a wild, impetuous son, according to the man with the dirty hands. It says, This particular boy became involved with the ruffians of the village who persuaded him to join them in the robbery of his own father's treasury house. Ancient Asian legend. After the robbery was over, his friends fled with the stolen treasure and left him to face the guilt of the crime all alone. The young man was desperate. He was deserted by his friends. He had betrayed the trust of his father. But the greatest crime was he had brought public dishonor upon the family name. The young man knew this. And in a culture, this ancient Asian culture where ancestors were worshipped and the family integrity was a sacred trust, this, says Leans, was the greatest crime of all, dishonoring the family name. So the boy is broken and deeply repentant. He goes to his father and he begs forgiveness. Graciously, forgiveness is granted. The father calls all the members of the family together to celebrate the reconciliation and the return of his son. They're all gathered around at this feast. They had all enjoyed the banquet to the fullest and the father stood and lifts up a cup of rice wine for a toast. Everybody has one there in front of him. Everybody, he lifts it up and he says, I want to make a toast. And everybody lifts up their glass in return and the son lifts his up. The son drinks deeply of the contents of his, of his cup. And within a few short seconds, he grabs his throat. His face turns white and he falls to the ground dead, poisoned because of the contents in the cup. The father with ceremonial dignity nods to all of the guests at the table who in response nod in return. All was now put right. The son had paid the price of his, par of his pardon with poison. His honor had been restored. The family integrity, family name had been restored. And the unfortunate incident was closed and promptly forgotten. That's how dishonor is dealt with in many of those cultures. And it's possible that this, something like this is what the Pharisees were expecting or hoping for. This is the just reward for this offense of the youngest son. In fact, the Jews had something similar, not quite as toxic as this, but they had a ceremony called the kazuza ceremony. 
And the kazuza ceremony was meant to deal with things like this. And there were two, um, sort of two ways that a, that a kazuza could be inflicted or carried out upon a particular Jewish man. The first is if he married a Gentile woman. That was against the law. That was against the, the culture of the time. If you marry a Gentile woman and you bring disgrace to your family, then we're going to bring this kazuza ceremony and implement it in front of you. The second, though, um, is if you lose your land, your property, or your inheritance to the Gentiles. If you squander your land, because all of this land was given by God, remember? This is the, the promised land. It's been assigned to each tribe, and each tribe has their own, and each clan has their own part of this. And if you, as a young, impetuous youth, were to take your land and somehow lose that and give it away or, or squander it and give it to the Gentiles, and that's, that's, that's highly offensive, and the kazuza would be brought, brought upon you. And what would happen is, first of all, there would be a gauntlet of uncles and brothers and cousins in the town waiting with some sticks and rocks and, and just whatever else we could grab. Because as soon as you made your way home, you're going to have to come through this gauntlet of your kinsmen who are going to beat the snot out of you. They're not going to kill you, but they're sure going to put the hurt on you. As you make your way in, you're going to see your father there seated at the gates of his father's home. He's going to have a clay pot. He's going to smash it down, shatter it as a symbolic gesture of what you have done to the family name. And then that son would work in a slave in his father's house until the debt is repaid. That's kazuza. That's what's expected. That's what's deserved. But it says this. He says, when he came to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, here we go. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He knows. He knows what he's done is a violation of God's law. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And maybe the Pharisees are thinking, okay, this is, this is where it gets good. This is where the sticks come out. This is where the rocks come out. This is where justice is dealt and the price is paid. It goes on, it says, but while he was still a long way off, y'all say long way off. That's important. Come on. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. I begin to notice that something that the Bible says a lot about Jesus when he's doing ministry is that he was filled with compassion. Jesus, wherever he goes, he looks and he sees and his heart just like breaks. His heart weeps and he's just overflowing with love and compassion. And the father's heart does the same thing. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. What does Jesus want us to see in this? And I, I think I grew up with the wrong understanding of this parable. I always thought that this was a parable about the son and how if we really are repentant and come back, God will forgive us. Parables, you know, prodigal sons, come on home. You need to come back to the way you were. Leave your wild living and come on back and God's got a place for it. How many of you sort of grew up thinking that this was it? If you're really sorry, you can come home, right? 
problem is he's real, this is really not about repentance. He's really not that repentant. He kind of is, but it's more of like desperation. You know, like, okay, I'm starving. I'm only sorry because of the situation that I'm in. What do I need to say or do so I can have food in my belly? Maybe it's a reminder of the price of sin. Maybe it's sort of this picture of this is what the world, this is what sin will cost you. Maybe that. uh, Maybe it's a rebuke to the religious elite. I don't know. I think more than anything, I think it's a glimpse into the heart of the Father. I think all of these, this is not about the sheep. This is not about the coin. This is not about the son. It's not. It's about the one who is seeking and finding. Because here's, here's why I'm thinking that. First of all, look at this. Um, verse 20 says, he saw, he had compassion, he ran, he embraced, he kissed. That Greek word, I don't, we don't get all like Greeky around here. Sometimes it makes a difference, right? I think this one makes a difference because in the Greek word, that kiss is not like the southern lady peck on the cheek. You know what I'm saying? Like, you ever kind of, you know, and you don't really touch it. This is like to, to smother with kisses again and again. That's the word. It's like what you do when you've been away from your kids and your heart is just overflowing. You just want to grab them up and like just smother them all over their face until they're giggling and laughing and pushing you away and say, stop, stop, stop. This is what he's doing. This is what the father is doing. Smothering with kisses again and again. But look at the word run. Again, in the Greek, though, it doesn't just mean like a, uh, it doesn't just mean hurrying. This means to race towards something with urgency, as in an emergency. And for an elder in the ancient Near East to run, he may as well have been naked doing a pole dance. If you're to visit the Middle Eastern today, and you find some traditional villages and some traditional peoples and tra- traditional elders, ask them, will you show me your legs? They'll show you outside of the village. You don't see them showing their legs. They may as well be naked. You don't see them running. They don't do that. That's indignified to do this. The Bible says that the father, you ever tried running in a, he's not wearing a dress, by the way, he's whatever, a robe, but you tried running in one of these things, running in a dress, you're going to trip and fall. What do you have to do? You got to hike it up. You got to show those skinny white legs. You got to bear it for all the world to see, and you got to take off running. This is undignified. Fathers don't do this, elders don't do this. But I began to think, why? Why is he running? Is he running just because he's so excited? Maybe. And still I stop to think about what possibly is about to happen to this son as he makes his way into the village, into the father's home. Because he is in his home and the father sees him far off. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him. I think he's running because between the father and the son is the wrath that he deserves. I think there's some cousins in the alleyways waiting with some sticks and stones. I think there's some brothers waiting to teach him a lesson. I think there's some uncles waiting to teach him a thing or two. 
And I can't help, but Bible doesn't say this. I don't know. I can't help but think that the father's act of desperation is to say no, no to what he deserves. This is my son. Put down the sticks, put down the stones, let him come home. He's going to run. He's going to be the first one there. We're not going to let justice be the first one there. We're going to let mercy be the first one there to greet him and kiss him and smother him and wrap your arms around him. The son says this, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. So the son says what's expected of him. He's expecting, okay, I've I've already rehearsed this. Dad, I'm sorry, not worthy to be your son. Let me be a servant. He's already been practicing this in his mind. And look what the father says. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. Who has the best robe in the house? He does. He's got the best one. He is the top of the food chain. He's got the right to everything that's good. But he says, go get the best robe and bring it here. It says, put, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine. This son of mine. Doesn't say this prodigal. Doesn't say this rebel. Doesn't say this servant now. So the son wants to be, the son's thinking he's a servant. The father's saying, no, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. Look at how he views it. There's this deadness. As far as the father was concerned, he is dead. He has one son left. That's it. What happened to your other son, old man? He's gone. That's all he would talk about. But somehow the son has come alive again and he's returned. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate And if I'm a Pharisee, I'm thinking to myself, this is not, this is not okay, Jesus. What about repentance? What about restitution? What about justice? You can't just ignore all that stuff that he's done, Jesus. This is not how good society works. And the Pharisees are wondering the same thing. There's a law that has been broken, an honor that's been offended, and the price has to be paid. And the Pharisees, these were, by and large, these were good men. They weren't hateful, hurtful people. They honestly loved God, and they thought that they were upholding God's high standard. But somehow along the way, they completely missed the heart of the Father. In all the rules and all the expectations and all the sort of the high standards, somehow they missed the heart of the Father. And Jesus comes along and Jesus says, I need to tell you something. The heart of the Father is is just radical. The heart of the Father is chasing down that which was lost and missing. The heart of the Father is running to throw wrath out of the way and get there first. And Jesus says it's not about a sheep. Sheep are always going to get lost. There's nothing unusual about a lost sheep. It may as well be 50 out of the 99. Sheep are that way. They get lost. Something unusual about that. What's amazing is that this one will leave all the 99 and go and chase down this one, says Jesus. He says, it's not really about a coin. Coins have a way of disappearing and falling down into the cushions or something else. It's about the woman who cleans house, turns everything upside down to find it. And he says, it's not really about a son. Sons are going to disappoint. They're going to break hearts. They're going to be offensive. Something remarkable about, remarkable about this. What's remarkable is the level that the Father has gone to. 
Y'all, y'all, y'all okay? All right. Y'all with me on this? Come on. So this has been traditionally called the prodigal son. Take a look at that word in the dictionary, prodigal. We don't use it very much, at least in our normal day-to-day. You know, we don't, we don't refer to people. The only time we ever talk about prodigal is in this story. Somehow it's kind of an old English word, and now we've lost it. This is what prodigal means. It means wastefully or recklessly extravagant, giving or yielding profusely or lavish. And that's the son right there. He's wasteful. He had all the blessings of his father, and he threw it away. He's reckless. He's not really giving careful thought to how his deeds might be perceived by others. He's extravagant in giving, buying all the stuff for his friends and all the women and all those things. Lavish. But let me suggest this, that as much as there's a prodigal son, more than that, there's a prodigal father. Because if you look at that definition at the top, church, that's what grace is. Grace is wasteful. Grace is reckless. Grace is, is, is giving or yielding profusely. Grace is lavish. If there's any prodigal here, it's not the son, it's the father. Look at what he gave up. That's, that's who God is. First John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I love, I'm so thankful that the Bible is written the way it is. I'm so thankful that, it's, that it doesn't say something tame like how pleasing it is that the Father offers us his love. You know, that's tame. That's not what it says. It says how great is the love that the Father has lavished. You know what lavish means? It means to keep piling it on. It's like, it's like on Christmas when you bring your kid two or three gifts and they're just so busy and you just keep bringing more of them, more of them in. And there's so many gifts, they don't even know what to do. They just don't even play with stuff anymore. They're just opening one, throwing it away, and opening another, and throwing it away, and they're surrounded. They're underneath this mountain of Christmas wrapping paper. That's lavish. Grace upon grace upon grace. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We're not just called that. That's what we are. We're we're children of God. He's our Father. We're sons and daughters. Anybody here struggling to believe this? Maybe it's me. Some days I am. Some days I'm just like, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that God has lavished grace for me? That even though I just uh, offend him sometimes, he still comes back and smothers me with kisses and says, look, you're my son. We have a father of radical, lavish grace, offers us the riches of his kingdom. Hmm. All right, Brian, come on up. Anthony, if you guys are doing music, come on up here. I want to be a church of I want to be a church of prodigals. 
and the different meaning, and there's like different layers to what that means. I want to, first of all, I want to be a church of prodigals brought home in the traditional sense, right? There's a church that some of us are familiar with in Dallas called Cornerstone? What's it called? Crossroads. There you go. It's obviously really close to me. They have a board up on the front. And it has the names of prodigals, like real sons and daughters who are far from the Lord. And they have this, these names, and they just write these names, and they pray for them until they all come in. Do they, like, erase the name? Is that how it happens? Or do they drew a line? They, they have another painting when the prodigal comes home. When another product, when the prodigal comes home, they, say, like, they like, you know, take his name off of this, and they put it on this other one. They just sort of keep tracking these. And I, like, I want to do that. I want to be a church that is just full of prodigals coming home. Maybe you've got some in your life. Maybe you have someone like that, son, daughter, cousin, brother, whatever. We need to be waiting. We need to have eyes like the Father who are looking out for those who are on the edge. We don't wait for them to get here at the front. We look and we say, who is right there ready to come in? Who is standing there who is afraid of what to say? Who is carrying their guilt and their shame and they're afraid to take a step in our direction? Who can I run towards? Who can I run towards in the name of the Father and bring them in? So I want to be a church of prodigals. I want to be a church of prodigal fathers and mothers. You can be prodigal fathers and mothers too. Lavish grace upon people. Heap it on them. Smother them with spiritual kisses. Maybe physical kisses, but keep it clean. You know? I want, to be a, I want to be a church who just lives in this reality of who the Father really is. God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't stand there with his arms crossed at the, you know, and say, look, when you really have thought about how terrible you are and explain to me all the bad things you've done, then you can come back home. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say you need to earn your favor back. God hikes up his skirt and runs. He, he runs where we are. He knocks people out of the way to get to us. He chases us around. Before words are even out of our mouth, he's smothering us with kisses. Who does this? What kind of God doesn't let us deliver our repentance speech? before he's kissing us and hugging us and pulling us close and calling for the best to be brought to us to celebrate. Doesn't make sense, does it? If anybody has a right to be offended, it's him. Oh, let's stand up, church. Come on, let's stand up. Let's just worship him. We're going to worship in prayer. Um,